Hi everyone, I'm Tina. And I'm Roshni. Welcome to the Behind Your Behavior podcast, where we explore patterns in human behavior and the reasonings behind them. Hey everyone, welcome to the Behind Your Behavior podcast. I'm Roshni, and I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Stacey Bilbo, who will be talking about stress and sickness behavior. Dr. Stacey Bilbo received her BA in psychology and biology from the University of Texas at Austin and her PhD in neuroendocrinology at Johns Hopkins University. She has served on the faculty at Harvard Medical School and as the director of research for the Lori Center for Autism at Massachusetts General Hospital for Children. Dr. Bilbo is currently a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Duke University, and her research is broadly focused on the mechanisms by which the immune and endocrine systems interact with the brain to impact health and behavior. Dr. Bilbo, welcome to the Behind Your Behavior podcast. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. We were really excited to have you on because of your background in both neuroscience and immunology. Could you talk a little bit about what made you interested in pursuing those fields? Well, actually, it's really relevant to the topic of today's podcast, which is sickness behavior. Um, I started out with an interest in neuroscience, but um, pretty much the week I arrived at graduate school at Johns Hopkins uh, University, my advisor handed me a book, which is called Why We Get Sick. Um, And it's essentially a book about evolutionary medicine. And uh, it profoundly affected the way I think about everything basically to this day. Um, It really talked about um, the types of behavioral and physiological changes that we experience um, when we're sick and how not all of those things are pathological, but many of them are actually adaptive. And it really just emphasized the profound interaction that occurs between the immune system and the brain. So the way that that the immune system can impact the way the brain functions, um, both during health as well as during sickness. So um, I would say that from the the very first week of graduate school, I became interested in this topic and and have remained interested ever since. Yes, sickness behavior, I think, is like you said, a really interesting combination of two things. And I think for our listeners, could we define what we mean for the intersection of the brain and immunology? What do you mean about how they work together? Well, I mean that, so for years and years, um, immunology and neuroscience, as you probably know, were very distinct disciplines. And and they are t- to this day, to some extent, uh, you go into a graduate program, you typically join an immunology department or you join a neuroscience department. Um, there are very few neuroimmunology departments out there, although that's changing slowly. But for many, many years, including when I was still in graduate school, there was this sense that they were pretty distinct disciplines. We now know, of course, that that's not the case at all. And as with any discipline, um, really it's more semantic than anything. Um, We often say that there are a number of hormones, for instance, that if they had been discovered by immunologists, then they would be called immune molecules. And, or if a neuroscientist had discovered these same molecules, they'd be called neurotransmitters. And yet they're called immune molecules because they were discovered in the peripheral 
body, you know, in the in the spleen or in the blood or something like that, and and they were discovered and and found to impact immune defenses or the way the immune system works, and therefore they're sort of categorized as immune molecules. So I think that at every level we now understand that there is this continual um, crosstalk between uh, these different systems at, down to the molecular level. Um, and, and so, you know, molecular mimicry sort of has a different meaning in, in evolutionary biology. But in this sense, I, I like to think of it as the same molecules doing potentially quite different things depending on where they are in the body. Um, but to, to, to make it really simple though, um, I just really what we think about when we say there's an interaction is that your immune system is critical for the way your brain works and your brain is critical for the way your immune system works. So that's the simple definition. Exactly. I really like what you were saying about the naming of some of these systems that we learn. So in medical school, we learn in systems, at least at my school. So I learned about the immune system, one of my first courses in medical school. And then actually my last course in medical school before starting clinicals was uh, the neuro system. And of course, we are seeing modulators everywhere, like you were mentioning, and our systems are constantly interacting, which is why I think it's so hard to learn medicine because everything impacts everything. But I think that was a great summary for our listeners that the brain is affecting our immune system and our immune system is affecting our brain. Yeah, I think that's it's so interesting that what you said about how um, when you first started grad school, they were completely separate topics. And I think that's something that we're seeing with neuroscience interacting with a bunch of different disciplines that maybe weren't interacting before or considered to be completely separate. Like one example I like talking about is economics. There's such a big field of neuroeconomics now that previously, like when I was in high school and stuff, that was, they were completely separate and you would never think of linking them. But I think it's so important to bring neuroscience into different types of fields, because as you said, they, they are interactive and it's not like it's a one direction impact that only the brain is influencing the immune system or vice versa. They're always, you know, interacting with each other. And can you talk a little bit about some of the research that's, that you're currently focusing on? Sure. One of our favorite topics in the lab um, are a cell type called microglia. Uh, microglia are uh, what are known affectionately as the resident immune cells of the brain, um, meaning that there are probably lots of immune cells that might occasionally traffic in to the brain or at least close to the brain, like in the meninges around, and then kind of go back out. But um, in this case, these are the cells that enter the brain early in development. Um, from the fetal yolk sac. So they are fully fledged immune cells called macrophages. They come into the brain early in development and then they live in the brain for the rest of their lives. Um, so we've been fascinated or I've been fascinated by these cells uh, essentially since I 
learned of their existence, um, which is 20 years ago now. Um, so, uh, and as soon as I discovered what, you know, the fact that there are macrophages that live in your brain, um, I was just instantly hooked. I thought, what an interesting concept. Um, and the reason I'm so interested in them is be because again, you've got this uh, sort of dichotomy between um, the immune system doing its thing in the periphery and then the brain doing its thing in, in, this, in the brain, in the central nervous system. Um, and the, again, there was very little mixing of the two uh, 20 years ago, certainly. So um, I think the discovery of microglia really upended a lot of that research. Right. What we have seen is that inflammation can cause changes at that level, right? On the cellular level, right? Like that's what our hypothesis is, is that these small changes at the cellular level are being seen every day in human behavior. So I think that's so relevant right now, right here, when you know, all of us are kind of in a sickness behavior. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons we're so interested in the cells, which I, I didn't really describe before. So what, what do they do? Why does our brain need so many immune cells sitting up there all the time? And one of their roles, of course, is to defend us from pathogens and, in, and infections and illness and all of these things. But the other thing that they do is that they sculpt the way the brain develops. So they they prune synapses, they engulf cells, they actually carve out extracellular, extracellular matrix tissue so that blood vessels can grow. I mean, they do all kinds of really cool stuff in normal brain development and, and potentially through, throughout life. That's something we're still trying to figure out uh, as a field. Um, but you have this real capacity for cells of the immune system to vary um, uh, quite literally impact uh, the way neurons are, are talking to each other and the way they're functioning because they're, they're juxtaposed right in there and they could eat a synapse if needed and change the way we think, change the way we are feeling, change fever responses, change all kinds of aspects of our behavior and our physiology. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people may not be aware of when I kind of realized that there is something called sickness behavior and our immune system can influence not only just the way our internal body reacts, but also the way we externally react to our environment. I think that's so interesting because I've always been, you know, fascinated by behavior and I've always thought of it as an external thing or, you know, like genetics can affect it, but I never really thought of, you know, your immune system really affecting your behavior. And I think that's such an interesting inter interaction of these systems in your body. And it's something that a lot of people, as I said, really don't know about. So can you kind of define what sickness behavior is to some of our listeners that may not know? Sure. So um, it is pretty much what it sounds like um, in that if you think about and this is so relevant for what's happening right now in our world. And so it's probably, it's probably something that everybody is thinking about, whether they want to or not. But if you think about the last time you were sick, let's say it was with the flu or something, you know, maybe not so devastating, but think about how you felt. Think about the sort of behaviors that you exhibited. Um, you were probably very tired. You were probably... Uh, not interested in socializing, you probably didn't have much of an appetite, you probably had a fever, you know, so you go to bed, you rest, you withdraw, you do all of these things, 
that at first glance seem like they are entirely a pathological consequence of a, of a pathogen, um, that the flu virus itself is hijacking your body and you're, you're exhibiting all of these, these behaviors because you feel terrible. Um, some of the most uh, sort of impactful research in the past uh, couple decades or several decades really has shown that in fact your own immune system is making you feel so terrible. Um, so if you were to block cytokines, for instance, which are the messengers of the immune system. So I mentioned hormones before, which most people are familiar with. Most people are familiar with neurotransmitters. Um, cytokines are essentially the comparable messengers of the immune system. These are produced by immune cells in the periphery and travel to the brain through a number of different routes and then are produced in the brain as well. And they signal between microglia and neurons, for instance. Um, if you block cytokines in the brain, even if you have a full-on flu infection, you will not feel sick anymore. It actually is this remarkable thing where it's all the immune molecules that are that are inducing these changes. Now you're not gonna fare very well in surviving the infection either. And in fact, it will probably be much worse. So, so the, the long story short of this is that all of these behaviors are actually adaptive and, and they have evolved over essentially our entire existence on this planet. Um, if you look at any species that is um, capable of mounting a robust immune response, you see this. I mean, you see it in lizards. You see it even in, to some extent in, in flies and, and, you know, very lower vertebrate um, species. And if you look across individuals too, you see that it's incredibly stereotyped. So, you know, some people don't get super hyper and, and happy when they're sick and some people don't. I mean, everybody feels terrible when they're sick, right? It's, it's very, very conserved. Um, and it's, and it's been maintained throughout evolution. And that's really our very strong clue that this is, this is serving some function. And many, many studies have now shown that that's the case. Um, so the reason that we think sickness behavior is so fascinating is, you know, beyond what I just said, which is interesting on its own, but there's two reasons that we think it's, it's pretty interesting. One is that if, if you're now saying that something like a flu virus can profoundly impact our behavior, that automatically tells you the brain has to be involved. Um, so that it was some of the early evidence that the immune system isn't just working in isolation all by itself. It, you know, the brain has to suddenly be involved and not, not suddenly, but has to be uh, involved in this response in order to orchestrate changes in behavior. So that's number one. The second reason that we're really fascinated by sickness behavior is that if you look at these sort of acute responses to infection that you see, again, conserved across individuals and, and species, um, and then you look at many of the symptoms of many neuropsychiatric disorders. So for instance, depression or anxiety, or even things like OCD, um, where you have sort of repetitive sorts of behaviors, you start to see some very interesting similarities. Um, and it, it's as if the, the initial um, adaptive response that you see with infection has become prolonged 
or potentially occurring even in the absence of a pathogen. Um, so something has happened where it's, you know, the signal is not getting shut off or it's getting, the signal is, is getting induced without a proper stimulus. And so we think that that's why there's probably a role for the immune system in a lot of these disorders. And, um, and that's where we get into really difficult territory for trying to figure out what's adaptation and what's pathology. And that's now a huge area of research particularly in depression. Right. In depression and anxiety and OCD, some of these uh, pathologic states of behavior we now know, we, you know, when we learn about them, we, we learn that there are physiologic changes that we see, right? So in depression, you see changes in the sleep cycle between patients who have depression and patients who don't. So there are physiologic markers. And that was something that was so important to bring out, you know, just for mental health awareness to show that there are physiologic changes in the body in these conditions. And I think this research is really important because a lot of these conditions like depression, anxiety, these are stress conditions, right? These are these are conditions where their bodies are chronically stressed. And, you know, the immune system, that's its entire job. And what happens when it's always activated. Right. Absolutely. And that, so that's another thing that we're really fascinated by, which is this interaction between stress and the immune system, stress and sickness behavior. Um, so, you know, uh, stress gets a bad rap because it's universally thought to be bad. Um, but of course, we know that stress is a physiological response. So it's actually a lot like sickness behavior in the sense that in the acute term, um, if you have a response to something that is, you, you know, you need to mount a metabolic and physiological response to in order to resolve, then of course we need cortisol, we need epinephrine, we need all of these, these hormones that help us to mobilize and to overcome whatever it is that's, that's coming at us basically. Um, so this the stress circuitry essentially and the immune system have absolutely co-evolved you know and the data show that there's a very good reason for that and what i mean by co-evolved is that it, if you look at any immune response you always have a stress response and if you have any stress response you always have an immune response and that is because in the acute term one of the very important things that stress hormones do is mobilize the immune system. And so, and I mean that quite literally. So one of the things that I studied as a graduate student was something called leukocyte trafficking or leukocyte redeployment. So leukocytes being the white blood cells of the body. And I studied how under acute stress conditions, um, typically your white blood cells in just a healthy homeostatic state are sort of hanging out in areas of the body waiting for something interesting to happen. Um, so they're hanging out in the spleen and then the liver and then the lymph nodes. And we like to call these the barracks of the body. So if you think of them as little soldiers, they're waiting to be deployed, right? A stressor comes along, you have cortisol, you have epinephrine. And what that does is it signals these cells to pour out of the barracks into the bloodstream. So you actually see a sort of a transient 
huge increase in the number of white blood cells in the, in the bloodstream. But they don't stay there very long. They get redeployed. They, they go to other areas of the body like the skin and the gastrointestinal tract and the lung. Essentially, all the areas that are more peripheral and are more likely to uh, either be infected or injured. And they're ready, right? And so, um, and so if you were to look at an immune response in the skin, and this is what I did again as a graduate student, um, you would see a much larger immune response in the skin following an acute stressor. So your immune system is actually way more efficient um, in that way. So where we get into trouble, though, in our current society, our modern sort of world, is that we don't have a resolution of those stress responses now. So, you know, when we evolved, stress looked pretty different. Um, and it, it often involved uh, physical activity. It often involved running away from something or running towards something, or at least at the very least, sort of a sustained level of exertion. And stress now often looks like sitting in front of your computer, you know, worrying about things that you can't control. And, um, and, but our immune system doesn't know the difference. So you're still pumping out cortisol and epinephrine, and you're still having this redeployment of immune cells into these areas. And then it never gets resolved um, because there's there's actually a really critical resolution signal that that doesn't get received, um, probably as a consequence of that lack of of physical uh, uh, exertion. Um, and so, if you think about all of the major health issues of our modern world, many of them involve inflammation and. If you just think about what I just talked about, it makes perfect sense that you've suddenly got all these immune cells in the bloodstream. You know, so if you think about arthrosclerosis, which is a you know heart condition, then you've got immune cells that build up in the blood vessels, and they you know they never get sent back home. <laughs> essentially, um, I mean, you you know you could go on and on and think about how inflammation is linked to all of these different disorders. Um, so that's, you know, I think that's honestly, you know, you know, before this, uh, this whole pandemic, I used to say, in in these sorts of lectures or talks or whatever that, you know, we don't die from infectious diseases anymore. <laughs> um, because we typically don't die from infectious diseases anymore, although that has certainly changed in, in, to some extent, but even facing what we're facing now, the, the largest uh, kind of assaults to our uh, health are largely non-infectious, right? They're these stress-induced sort of complications of, um, of how, our, our, how our body works and how it responds to stress. You know, in the hospital, when we are trying to see if a patient is battling an infection, for example, you look at one of the things is what we call inflammatory markers. And these are, you know, some signal molecules or something that we know tend to correlate with states of infection. And that's why we look for them. But it, it's hard, right? Because now we know that these markers are involved in so many processes that, you know, we call them very nonspecific. So when you see that number is up, you don't really know what's going on. And I think 
it's for it's the reasoning behind that is exactly what we're talking about right here is that these cells you know the immune system it it kind of runs the entire body like the brain runs the entire body but so does the immune system they're kind of co-parenting at this point yeah so i I mean absolutely i think it's in many ways the the stress response is fairly stereotyped right the immune system is fairly stereotyped uh meaning that you you know you you have a stimulus you have a response and it's not especially when we talk about uh what is known as the innate immune system as opposed to the adaptive immune system which is the type of immunity that you develop in response to a vaccination, for instance. Um, but innate immunity is sort of the first wave, the first defense of the body. And it, it, it is classically thought of as being essentially the same every time. You know, when we, when we then talk about or think about stress and how stress impacts uh, all of these processes we're talking about, I think that um, one of the things that's really relevant for what's happening right now is that um, we have this constant level of stress. We have this constant, probably level of immune activation because of that. Uh, we know that these sorts of immune activation can impact our mood, can impact our cognitive abilities, make us tired, all these things, you know, so probably everyone is experiencing a bit of sickness behavior right now, which looks an awful lot like depression. Um, uh, you know, or anxiety or these sorts of things. So that's, I think, something I've really been thinking a lot about. Um, and, you know, sort of what that means for coping mechanisms and lots of things that, that we could talk about. Yeah, I think something really important that you brought up is that stress is this adaptive response that's been evolutionarily conserved. And I think a lot of, you know, the general public, it has the stigma that stress is bad and it's always bad, but it's really interesting to see that acute stress actually is there for a reason. And you know, that it's, it's in some cases when it's these acute stressors, it's actually good for you. And it's kind of helping you strengthen your body and strengthen your immune system. Um, but then when it gets to chronic stress, like what you're saying, what we're seeing now, when it becomes this chronic stressor, that's kind of when we see the sickness behavior and that's when it gets to be harmful and can you know, develop into something like depression or anxiety. What do you think some of the major stressors we're facing that may be you know, exacerbating the sickness behavior? Right, so... Well, what we know about stress is that um, we know that the worst kind of stress is the kind that you can't control and the kind that you can't predict. <laughs> so so that's those are the big ones, right? Many, many studies have shown that if you have some ability, even if you have a really stressful job, but you have control over your own, your own schedule or you have control over when you know, you're really working hard, but you're able to take time off when you need to, those sorts of things. Those people are way healthier than the people who have a very rigid schedule, for instance, and have no control. Um, and the same, you know, same for predictability, which is, you know, can you predict when you're going to have uh, stressors occur or not? And if you can't, I mean, and we see this even in rats, we see this, you know, so this is, again, this sort of conserved mechanism. So in sort of seminal experiments in this field, if a 
if a rat is getting a, a, a little mild foot shock or something, you know, very unpleasant, uh, not hurting the rat, but but still very unpleasant. If the if the rat cannot predict or control that shock, then eventually that rat will start getting major health problems that will start developing lesions and uh, even unrelated to where it's getting shocked. Uh, it will start showing sickness behavior and it will start showing symptoms of what we think is probably depression in a rat. But if you give a different rat the exact same amount of shocks, but you allow the animal to, for instance, turn a wheel and turn the shock off, or you present a light which tells the rat, okay, the shock is coming um, to predict the, the shock, then, then the, the rat doesn't get sick. So it's this amazing thing that if you're just able to sort of control uh, what's happening, um, that it has a, a profound effect on, on the immune system. So I think that the, what we're experiencing right now is the you know, it's the worst possible combination of unpredictable and uncontrollable stress. Um, so, you know, given that, I think the most useful advice that I've recently received, uh, and probably read it in some, some opinion piece, but actually really affected me, which was to try to find the things that you actually can control during this time and to focus on controlling those things. And everything else you, you truly have to sort of let go. You know, you can't control how, uh, you know, whether your neighbor wears a mask or not. I mean, probably not. Uh, but you can control if you're gonna, you know, interact with them or, you know, those sorts of things. I mean, so even down to the very granular level, trying to focus on the things you can control and, and, not, and not the rest. That's so interesting. There's so many things that are happening right now in the world that we can't control. And if you focus on what you can't control, you'll overwhelm yourself, you know, like you can't control what the government is doing, which I think is probably the most frustrating thing. But, you know, controlling those small things is so important. And this kind of links to a lot of the stuff we see in decision making, which is what I'm primarily interested in. But when you're making a decision, and even when you look at the low level of how your brain is actually, you know, evaluating that decision. When there's a lot of uncertainty in the decision, it really affects the way your brain kind of processes the choices. And your brain almost doesn't know how to function when there's a high level of uncertainty. And it's so interesting to see that, that even like in the smartest people who can make the decisions the best, when there's such a large amount of uncertainty, which is what we're kind of seeing here, we can't plan for what's going to happen tomorrow or in a month or in a year, you know, that, that level of uncertainty is really hard for humans to deal with and process. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it, it reminds me of, of some research um, that I just think is, is really fascinating regarding decision-making, which is um, the work of Neil Harrison at um, Brighton University. Um, who has done a lot of really cool um, fMRI work with um, with uh, very unfortunate human volunteers where he actually in injects them with a very low level of something called endotoxin, which we use in animal models to very robustly activate the immune system. 
Um, or he takes advantage of sort of natural experimental conditions in which um, people come in, they're getting a vaccination to something, for instance. Um, so it's something they need anyway. In any case, the bottom line is their immune system is activated. And, you know, in the case of a vaccination in particular, it's, you know, you don't even know that your immune system is activated typically. Like you go in, you feel fine. You know, you go back home and, and your immune system does whatever magical thing it does and you're protected. But your brain actually does know that your immune system is activated. And his studies have shown this because um, A, he's shown that there's differential sort of activation patterns in the brain, including areas like the amygdala, which is... Uh, very attuned to threat or appraisal. But what's really cool is that the decision-making process is different. So these subjects will make more conservative decisions if they have just had a vaccination than otherwise. Um, meaning that, you know, it, again, it's sort of like the sickness behavior where you sort of withdraw, you kind of, you know, go underground a little bit <laughs> until, until you feel better or until things are safer. Um, so that's also really, really interesting given what we're all going through that not only are we all potentially having some low level immune activation or having sickness behavior with the sort of behavioral consequences of that, but, but everybody is complaining or everyone I know is complaining, including myself that, you know, we're having trouble concentrating, we're having trouble making decisions on even like the smallest, tiniest things, you know. And again, it's completely held up by the research that there there's a reason for this. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating. You know, there's so many things happening in our body. This is on, you know, a broader level that we are not aware of that are fully happening, happening subconsciously. And I think this is such a great example of that. And the fact that you actually can't control everything that's happening, you know, your immune system will subconsciously affect your behavior, the way you decide things and so many other aspects of, of your life. Right. And I think um, the immune system is a perfect example of that, where it's always on in the background doing something. And we're not always thinking about it. Vaccines are the perfect example, right? You get a shot, and you don't realize this, but your body is building an army of cells against that particular virus or toxin or, you know, whatever it is. But that that's amazing, right? And most people will, you know, I, I complain about shots. I think they hurt. <laughs> but or, you know, some people <laughs> will get redness, itchiness around the injection site. But most people will never think about that shot, really. You know, your day goes on, your life goes on. And it's just amazing. And when we think about the fact that the immune system, as you were talking about in the beginning, is involved in development at such a high rate, you really wonder how much of our everyday life is influenced by these cells going up and down and changing what they're doing, changing their signals. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, to, to sort of loop back around, uh, well, there's two things I would say uh, also about vaccines, which is also really fascinating. I told you that stress actually impacts this redeployment of immune cells um, uh, in the acute term and that this is beneficial. You can have a more robust immune response. Um, there's actually some really cool uh, studies that have been done where if people um, run on the treadmill before they get the flu vaccine, 
that they have greater um, protection against the flu because they have this acute immune response <laughs> because exercise is essentially a stressor, right? But it's, it's the good kind of stress, right? Um, it's a metabolic, you know, ramping up um, and it's been shown to, uh, to improve your efficacy with, uh, with the flu vaccine. So, so that's really cool. Um, and then the other thing I would say is that I think in, in thinking about all of this, like for me, I mean, for me as a researcher, so I think about this all the time and I study this. And so it's easy to get, um, it's, it's easy to almost become a hypochondriac in some ways. So when I, whenever I get my flu vaccine, which is every single year, um, <laughs> I believe strongly in the, in the, in vaccinations, but I, you know, I actually don't schedule anything really very important for myself that day, because I know that it's probably going to affect me in some ways. I don't make any big decisions that day. You know, I sort of, I sort of know, you know, I am going to be having this like robust immune response, even if I'm not totally aware of it. So that's one thing that I do um, now that I think about it. Um, but the second thing is, I think it's, it's also very helpful for me to recognize these sorts of things that, especially with what we're going through right now, I mean, I think all of us, you know, the two of you doing a podcast called Behind Your Behavior is quite interesting because I think you'll probably agree that we're really terrible at determining why we behave in certain ways. Definitely. <laughs> we're, we're actually, as a species or whatever, uh, we're just, you know, we do things and, and, you know, why we're behaving this way. We're just very terrible at self-analysis, I think. That's um, a secret of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so for me, though, it's really helpful as a sickness behavior researcher to realize that these processes are happening. And if, I, if I'm having just a terrible day, to just remember, actually, you know what? This is totally normal, and this is this is just my body is probably doing something. It's probably processing something, and we think of you know we think of the immune system as our sixth sense. You know, of course, we have many more than five senses. We know that, but but still, um, the sixth sense is the is the one that's always kind of talking to you that you're not quite as aware of, but but it's helpful to think of it as you know, thing in the background that is nonetheless always impacting your behavior. It's good to know that you schedule yourself around that. I think I'm definitely also going to do that. I think I see no reason <laughs> not to. The research is clear. But what I want to go on to now is maybe talk a little bit about how social distancing might be bringing in sickness behavior in all of us, right? So we talked about this wow. a little bit, Roshni and I also, that there, there are days where I just don't want to do anything. And sometimes I'm like, what day of the week is it? Because it's quarantine life. And so there are days where you just don't feel like doing things. And is that sickness behavior? Or can I say that sickness behavior? Yes, I think you can, for <laughs> sure. Um I, I, you know, and that's another element that, yeah, we haven't, we haven't touched on at all, but it's a huge um, aspect of this, which is that social behavior 
is so sort of intermixed with sickness behavior. In fact, a, a postdoc in my lab and, and me, are, we're working on a, on a paper on this very topic because it's such a critical topic that basically uh, social support is one of the best ways to bolster your immune system. So we know from, again, from animal studies, but also humans, many human studies, um, but animal studies are, are what I know the, the most about, at least at a mechanistic level. Um, very simple experiments with mice that if you house them together with a, with a, uh, a good friend, then, and you give them a little wound in their skin, for instance, um, that they will heal faster than if they're housed by themselves. And, um, and this even works with uh, putting a, a grid in between them so that they can't actually touch each other. Um, so the concern being that, well, maybe they're just licking and grooming each other and saliva has all these wonderful medicinal properties. Um, so it's not that, it's actually just the social interaction itself and uh, and they've gone on to show that this is actually mediated by the, the hormone oxytocin. So if you if you inject oxytocin into the animal that's housed alone, then they will also heal their wounds more quickly. And it turns out there are oxytocin receptors directly on immune cells, and it mobilizes these these cells um, uh, in a in a helpful way, at least for wound healing. So. Uh, so there's all kinds of examples of this um, in in humans and across animals. So social support's really important for our immune system. And of course, now we're all uh, not getting very much social support, at least many of us. And so now we've got the double hit of increased stress and decreased social interaction um, at the very time when we need it the most in terms of, of resilience. Uh, to infection. So that's <laughs> obviously not good. I think what is hopeful though, is that uh, again, going back to the mouse study, at least, even if they can't touch each other, then it still works. Um, and, you know, they are able to sort of see each other and, and, um, and know the other animal was there and who knows how a mouse sort of communicates uh, with each other. But uh, in whatever way that works, it was a it was enough to have the same benefit. So I think that's at least uh, hopeful for all of us that are spending all day on Zoom. Yeah, I, I hope so too. I think that, you know, the social the social interactions, I, I hope that they are still having a benefit over Zoom or if you're outside and sitting six feet apart, you know, maybe even the level of benefit will be different and that could be really interesting. I don't know if we'll, really be able to find that answer out in our near future but we're going to learn a lot from this I think it, at the end of the day yeah I mean I, I don't think that this had happened in in this country but you may know that um, in England they had actually recently appointed you know a, a loneliness czar basically so you know an, an official high up in the government who was um whose task it was to try to confront the the overwhelming levels of loneliness in england which of course is probably the case in this country too and so i think 
even well before this, there was this recognition that um, the sort of quality of our social interactions is absolutely critical for our health. And, um, and so these things are uh, definitely uh, becoming much more amplified. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to see, as Tina mentioned before, how this affects us in the long run. And, you know, as things get more and more virtual, you know, people are talking about working, becoming completely virtual, you know, Twitter and and some of these companies have gone completely virtual. And it's going to be interesting to see how it affects not only, you know, actual social interactions, but also working styles and, you know, productivity and all these other things that previously were fully in person. And, you know, I kind of think of that rodent study with the mesh between the two rodents as, you know, like this computer screen between me and you right now, you know, we're still getting that social interaction, but to see how, how it's actually affecting us versus if this was in person, if that would be any different. Um, I think it's going to be really, you know, it's almost like a natural experiment happening right now. Um, And I think we are getting a little close to the end of our podcast. And we wanted to end all of our podcasts with the same question that we ask all of our guests. And that question is, what do you think is the most interesting thing about human behavior? I know it might not be the easiest question, but. The most interesting thing about human behavior. Um, Well, I think it's what I already mentioned, that it is that we are also terrible at actually evaluating the <laughs> the reasons behind our own behavior um you know even uh, and i say that because um i've had instances where i've been incredibly stressed for stretches of time and you know and then i go to the doctor and they're like you know you've got like autoimmune markers or something in your blood or whatever, like something is going on, what's going on. And I'm, and I'm shocked every time, you know, I'm just like, what, yeah, this sort of thing. Uh, so I, and, and which, you know, and I'm, I'm fine, but basically it's just this idea that, that even for me, and I do this for a living, I study this for a living. It's so easy to forget that these are, uh, real processes. These are, these are mechanisms that are happening in all of us. And I just find that fascinating. Like what, what is it that, you know, there must be an evolutionary mechanism there that has allowed us to sort of forge ahead without, uh, you know, too much awareness of how every single action is affecting um, others or ourselves, but I find that really fascinating. So basically I think I'm interested in the things you're interested in, you know, what's, what's behind the behavior. Well, we love that answer. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today and share your experiences with all of our listeners. Thanks so much. It was great fun. To end, I think this was such an amazing conversation. I feel like we could talk all day and it's so applicable to what's happening all around us in the world. And for more information on Dr. Bilbo and some of our upcoming episodes, be sure to follow us on Twitter at the BYB podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Bilbo. And thanks for tuning in and be sure to subscribe for more. Stay safe, everyone.